the Self-Aware Leader, Chapter 7, Seeing Your Conflicts. The first time intense conflict in ministry setting is often a shock for people new to ministry. It's difficult to watch Christians equally committed to Christ disagreeing sharply. Young leaders are regularly unprepared for the first blitz of criticism they may get for changing something simple. The day-to-day functions of team ministry seem messier and less glamorous than advertised. And with teams of any size, not everyone will be pleased or happy with all decisions or directions. Most leaders enter ministry with very few skills in conflict management. Schooling doesn't develop those skills, and most organizations don't have it as part of a training program. Conflict is a struggle between people holding beliefs, values, opinions, or perspectives that differ. The struggle can involve two people exchanging words in a meeting or can involve many countries and their armies. The struggle can emerge based on how we communicate due to our cultural background, ethnic context, temperament, and personality. The beliefs, values, and opinions socially formed by our life experiences, by good and bad organizational experiences, and by our education, formal and informal, shape our interactions with others in significant ways. It is no wonder that we need grace and to be gracious. There are three realities you need to know. First, conflict in ministry is inevitable and rarely enjoyable because humans are involved. Second, conflict is healthy for a community that is on a mission to clarify the vision. Finally, it's not that conflict happens, but how we do conflict that matters. When James talks about conflict, he puts the blame on our pursuit of pleasures, James 4 verse 1. But not all conflicts are selfish. We can have differences over two right things. Should the gospel go to Jews or also to Gentiles? Right and wrong. Should we cheat on our taxes or not? Two wrong things. Should we embezzle from this fund or that fund? Or even things that have no right or wrong answer. Is the blue carpet better than the green carpet? Christian ministry leaders don't have a stellar track record of handling conflict. Some of us are assertive leaders. It's my way or the highway, because leaders lead, right? And we haven't developed the necessary graces. Some of us behave quite differently, acting nice every day and denying that anything is wrong. Most of us, though, operate somewhere in between. No matter our approach, conflict churns deeply and can easily grow into bitterness, resentment, and other emotional cesspools if not handled well. If leaders can't learn how to navigate conflict, they will not last long in ministry. Conflict and the Bible Whenever people work, live, and interact with others, there will be moments of conflict, and Scripture provides some clear examples of how best to handle it. Perhaps the most challenging description of the process is in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5-7. through Jesus teaches us a relationship lifestyle rooted in resolved conflict. Number 1. The beginning of Matthew chapter 5 describes the spirit with which we should approach each other in moments of tension. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Number two, Jesus says when his listeners are offering sacrifices at the altar and remember someone who has something against them, they are to leave the offering and be reconciled to the other person. Matthew 5 verses 23 to 24. The text is slightly ambiguous. 
Jesus doesn't say whether the other person is justified in their concern. So whether you are wrong or they merely think you are wrong, restore the relationship. Number three, Jesus says that his followers aren't to claim their right to retaliate in difficult situations. He identifies five possible situations and establishes this principle. Look for ways to seek the good of the other person. Number four, Jesus says that his followers are to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. Matthew 5, verse 44. This isn't a platitude. It's the way Jesus lived and died. When hanging on the cross, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. Number five. Jesus gives the disciples a prayer outline, which includes the phrase, Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Matthew 6, verse 12. Then, lest we miss the point, he picks that one phrase of the prayer to explain. If we forgive others, Jesus says, we will be forgiven. But if we do not, we won't be forgiven. Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. Number 6. Then Jesus picks up on the idea of judging others, Matthew 7, 1 through 5, likening our offenses to logs and the offenses of others to twigs. But he isn't minimizing the magnitude of offenses. People do awful things to others. He is saying that we have to resolve the things in our lives that blind us to the truth, that break our relationship with God and others. Then we can work with others to address their offenses. Sometimes we have disagreements that need to be addressed. As a tax collector, Matthew knew a thing or two about conflict. He recorded Jesus' teaching on the steps to handling disputes. Person A is to go and show person B their offense, just the two of them. If there is no resolution to the problem, either confession or realization that there wasn't an offense, then person A is to bring in one or two other Christians as witnesses and to seek a resolution. If that fails, then the situation is to go before the church, whether the whole body or representative leadership. And if it can't be resolved there, then Jesus says one of the hard sayings we like to skip over. Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That is, treat the person with compassion, but not as part of the community of believers. The goal is to resolve it as quickly as possible by going directly and privately to the other person and seek resolution. Paul summarizes what Jesus says with a simple and challenging statement to the Roman church. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Romans twelve eighteen. Handling Conflict Well, Once and for All It's ironic that I'm writing a chapter on conflict because I am one who tries to avoid it as much as possible. Yet, as a leader, I have to navigate it regularly, even initiate it when confronting wrongs, and as a consultant, I sometimes mediate conflict in churches, nonprofits, and ministries. Most of the time, the problem is that people have not learned how to do conflict well. What if we could solve that once and for all in our lives? What would happen if whenever we had a disagreement or conflict, there was no bitter residue for days and weeks afterwards? What if forgiveness was as much our recognized character as our entrepreneurial drive and talents? The following are 10 principles that will help you navigate conflict well. I wish I had known these in the early days of my ministry. They would have helped me resolve many problems. Number one, 
work in slowly from the edges of the conflict. As I write this, Kelly is assembling a jigsaw puzzle nearby. She didn't start with a center, but first found the edge pieces and framed the puzzle. Then she worked inward. Too often we want to run to the middle of a conflict when we haven't framed the whole picture. There are a couple of ways to lay out the frame. First, take the time to listen to the people involved in the conflict. As we read in Proverbs, in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. Proverbs 18, verse 17. We need to take time to identify and listen to all the voices. Second, take the time to understand the scope of the conflict. We often hear, everyone is upset, when only two or three people are upset. We hear, everything is broken, when only one process is broken. It takes more time than we think to understand the situation. But if we rush to our own solution... We might miss God's incredible blessings as he works out this conflict. Number two, understand how conflict erupts. To frame well, we need to know what often causes group conflict to go wild. I've learned so much from Pastor Dave Ingbrick at Napanese Missionary Church in Indiana through the years. One of his consistent teaching points is, let's make sure we do conflict well. There's no absence of high-powered leaders on his church staff or in the congregation, and doing conflict well doesn't mean there aren't intense conversations or problems. But conflict has never resulted in divisiveness, and each year he gathers his leadership teams to remind them of what causes ministry teams to go rogue. What causes ministry teams to go rogue? Selfishness, the inability to play team ball. Pettiness, letting small things become big, personal agendas, the inability to have frank and honest discussions, failure for leadership to watch themselves individually and as subgroups, low level of commitment to the cause, lack of clarity of the mission. Think back to the last conflict that your group had. Which of these contributed to it? What was your responsibility to the conflict? What would have minimized the severity of the conflict? Number three, discuss with many voices, leave with one voice. After addressing any intense conflict, when the meeting is over and the decision made, the group is to be of one voice. There is to be no leak of who said what and when. Unity is a demonstration that the issue has been truly resolved. Mistrust that can develop due to a lack of discretion will limit the potential and effectiveness going forward. And this is the area where many organizations and churches fall short. Number four, never intentionally have conflict with other leaders in front of those you lead. Some may question whether it's bad to display leadership conflict in public, but discretion is a worthy goal to pursue. When people watch their leaders having conflict, too often we lose significant credibility. Whenever a confrontation is necessary, Take the strategy that Priscilla and Aquila used with Apollos. Discuss and resolve it in private. Acts 18, verse 26. Number five, never resolve conflict via email or social media. Conflict is rarely resolved until the people are face to face. I know some may disagree with this, but I feel so strongly about this that in all of my organizations, I have a policy in place to not engage in conflict via email or social media. Here's why. At our best, we can misunderstand written communication. 
Even with emojis, we can't put into writing all the information and feeling that is conveyed through tone of voice, facial expressions, gestures, and pauses. It's easy for someone to attack a leadership decision on Facebook. When this happens, refrain from the temptation to respond in kind. Instead, using Jesus' teaching to go the second mile, reach out to the person privately. When the topic is delicate or explosive, take the time to make yourself as present as possible to resolve conflict. Number six, though conflict should be resolved quickly, make sure to let the emotional fervor fade first. In Christian circles, we like to quote, don't let the sun go down on your anger. This advice comes in a discussion in Ephesians chapter 4 about how we are to relate to each other. But the text is not saying that we have to talk with everyone we are angry with before sunset each day. I've discovered that sleeping on matters for a night sometimes helps. I have a friend who gets so fired up, meaning that he gets passionate, that he tells people, I'll get back to you within 72 hours so he can calm down, think through the problem, and not respond from pure emotion in the moment. Number seven, learn not to say whatever comes to your mind. I have seen this pattern too often, and people who speak without regard to relationships aren't usually treasured by colleagues. This is something people may wish they could tell us, but don't want to hurt our feelings. Speaking the truth in love doesn't give us license to say the first thing that comes to our minds. One pastor I knew is aware that he could easily get into debates, so he always takes a blank legal pad into meetings where people will be airing grievances, and he simply takes notes throughout the meeting. Writing disciplines him to pay attention to what is being said rather than anticipating his responses. If you talk more than the other people you're with, you will want to check to see if you're listening well enough and if your conversation is well filtered. Number eight, set limits to strong statements. Though sometimes we have to initiate conflict, the bigger issue is that we need to know when we're doing so. We leaders can speak our minds so often that we aren't aware of the effect it has on those around us. The older we get, the more comfortable and unaware of this we can become. I often talk about coupons as a way to be aware of forcefulness in groups. I tell groups that when we step into a meeting or group, we only have one coupon in our pocket. This coupon lets us make a strong and uncomfortable statement, comment, or point that may conflict with others' views. It's not an excuse for causing needless pain or for reminding everyone about our obsession. But it is permission to be direct. Usually, but not always, once we have used the coupon, we're done. I was in a meeting with a leader who had heard me teach on the coupon principle. He was fired up about the topic, but realized he already had made some strong statements in that meeting. He looked at me and said, I'm playing my second coupon. And then he did, which was fine. The coupon principle had still served its purpose. It helped us manage the number of moments when we're being forceful or we're initiating conflict. Number nine, resist defensiveness. Almost no one naturally likes criticism, even the constructive kind. But sometimes we feel attacked when someone appropriately identifies issues that need to be resolved. A staff member was thinking through how she talks with her boss and realized that every time her boss identified something in the church that needed attention, she defended what she had done, 
If the toilet paper dispenser was empty, she explained how busy the church had been the day before. If a lock wasn't working, she explained how many times they had tried to fix it. The boss wasn't being critical or accusatory, but was merely mentioning issues that needed to be resolved. The empty paper towel dispenser on a Sunday morning needs to be filled, not explained. But my friend interpreted it as an attack and immediately defended herself and the people who reported to her. Her defensiveness was keeping the conversation from turning to solutions. Some things need to be defended. This doesn't mean that shepherds don't defend the sheep from attack, but defending our reputation in conversations with family, friends, and co-workers wastes the energy and attention that could go toward taking care of the issue. A proverb goes to the heart of the problem. Pride only breeds quarrels, the sage says, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Proverbs 13, verse 10. Bob Goff is an attorney who defends victims in courtrooms in this country and in orphanages overseas. When his clients are called to give depositions to be interviewed about their story, he tells them to sit with the backs of their hands on their legs and their palms open facing up. By not clenching their fists, they will stay calm and not get defensive. And as Goff says, when people get angry or defensive, they tend to make mistakes. It's good counsel. Number 10. Be personally committed to excellent communication. I know that not all conflict comes from poor communication. We can have conflict even when we clearly understand each other. Nevertheless, I don't want my communication failures to cause conflict. For example, when there is poor communication, people dream up wild rumors that lead to conflict and chaos. I had a friend who was so inattentive to his communication that more conflict and mistrust developed in his organization than the others in his community. When I am at my best, I do all that I can to eliminate confusion, to affirm the value of the people I work with, to listen and then to speak. I practice the things in this list. I know that I'm not always at my best, but a godly leader should attempt nothing less where conflict is part of the landscape. To this point, I've spoken of our own posture when it comes to conflict. We all have moments when we think others are causing conflict. Then we see the real cause in the mirror. However, we can work in environments where the issues are not our own. The problems can run deep within the organizations or churches where we work. They are often present before we arrive and will remain after we leave. The following are three kinds of people who are chronic sources of conflict. Controlling people. Research into church conflict shows that leaders are often fired due to conflict over who is in control. What usually sparks the problems is a change or an attempt to change. A new staff member attempts to introduce changes and discovers someone who feels they should have been consulted. A pastor arrives at a new church and discovers that someone won't issue them a key to the kitchen. When you think that there may be a pattern of control, try this process. See if there is a series of conflicts around the same person. Discern whether control is at the heart of the problem. Determine what steps you are willing to take and release control into God's hands. In cases of controlling people, the surface issue will sound spiritual, thoughtful, or managerially intelligent. Making sure you can see the point of conflict will allow you to move carefully toward discerning the real issue. Antagonistic personality. Truthfully, some folks struggle in leadership because their personalities are like sandpaper to others. 
They have difficulty keeping jobs and being close with peers. We may be asked to work alongside them. Rather than react to them, I've learned to draw them closer in. It seems counterintuitive and still doesn't fix the core problem. But the practice has allowed my relationship with these types of folks to be productive. The truth is that as I spend longer hours getting to know the real person behind the course exterior, I can work better with and advocate for them. And I find that as a trusting relationship develops, there are opportunities for honest discussion about developing warmth and empathy. Detached Leadership It's difficult to know how to be successful when leaders don't provide clear direction and are inattentive to results. I have worked in such environments, so I'm familiar with the positives and negatives. There is a welcome freedom in these situations, but there is also a lack of motivation to work hard, and it's unclear for why you should strive to do so. Expectations are often not met because there is a lack of distinct guidelines for what needs to happen. If the leader doesn't clearly lay out the direction towards success, others will simply not follow. Learn to seek out the direction and affirmation you need rather than getting frustrated in waiting. Offer clear proposals and plans, which will provide a framework for action and a path for others. Look for purpose in the organization and in the work itself rather than in the leader. If you can't find impact for the kingdom of God, step aside. Because wasting resources on confusion is not stewardship. The important aspect with these situations is to be aware of the difficult dynamics you are experiencing. Then you can prayerfully make sure that God wants you to be there. Just because these kinds of people are in our lives doesn't give us license to be disobedient to what God wants for us. Silent but deadly. Passive aggressiveness. The source of much conflict is readily apparent, but I want to spend time exploring conflict that is more insidious. We all know what active aggressiveness is. Fist up, voices raised, combative attitudes. We know less about passive aggressiveness. And yet, this hidden approach to conflict may be more present in our organizations or our lives than the active kind. Before I explain, I want to tell you something about how I grew up. Some of us grew up in a culture where we didn't express anger much. It may be more accurate to say that we couldn't express anger. I remember long road trips in the family station wagon. Seatbelts optional, of course, as we played in the back of the station wagon with the back window rolled down. If I ever became angry about something, I would get silent. That's right, I would withdraw. I'll show them I won't talk to them. Now that I'm a parent, I know that I wasn't punishing my family in those moments. I was blessing them with my silence. I still struggle with honesty about conflict. Ask me how I'm doing and I'll say fine, even though I could be secretly steaming. My wife Kelly knows better, of course and just smiles at me whenever I try that with her. But that's how I learn to handle things. I'm always fine, even when I'm not. Just ask me. At its core, passive aggressiveness is a discontent between what we say and what we do. It is deception, a dishonesty that is antagonistic to others and to God's desires. Enemies disguise themselves with their lips, but in their hearts they harbor deceit. Proverbs 26 verse 24. Organizations can hold meetings to discuss policy and procedures. Everyone around the table can say they agree, but someone can sabotage progress by not meeting deadlines and generating indirect hostility. 
People can make caustic comments in conversations, but then add, I was only joking, or why are you mad, to avoid direct, honest dialogue. Passive aggressiveness can create another disconnect when there is an inability or unwillingness to communicate directly and honestly. Sometimes leaders have to delay decisions or releasing a communication. That's normal for any organization. However, it can sometimes morph into something more where we stretch the truth, don't tell the truth, and even cover for others in dishonest or even deceptive ways. Whether it's due to insecurity or overconfidence, I'm amazed how quickly we in Christian leadership can be tempted to deceive and lie to those we lead, but we give the practice other names. If we aren't attentive, that sinful deception will only grow and end up damaging many others' lives, ruining our message and staining our legacy. How easy is it for someone you lead to get the truth from you? How would those you lead answer that question? Would others say that there is a high level of trust in your group? Is there a group who might say there is not a high level of trust? Passive aggressiveness destroys trust, and trust is a precious commodity for leaders. Trust is the close companion to genuine love and true grace. When we're passive-aggressive, we deceive by presenting ourselves one way, but working toward another outcome. We do so out of fear. When our autonomy or authority is threatened, or when our plan is opposed, and we don't have much power or can't really say anything. Psychologists say passive-aggressiveness shows up when the following are true. Number one, anger is socially unacceptable. That is, being a good Christian means not being angry. Number two, anger is expressed in alternative ways since we are actually angry inside. Number three, we rationalize our position as the victim or as the voice of reason. Number four, we have a way to get back at someone who wrongs or opposes us. And number five, we have a way to influence others' emotional responses and behavior. The classic passive-aggressive person in the Bible is the older brother of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Missionary counselor and former psychology professor Ronald Kotsky points out that the older son met six of the seven total criteria for passive aggressiveness in three short verses. The older brother resisted carrying out routine social tasks. He refused to go to his brother's party, complained of being unappreciated by others. His father never gave him a party, was sullen and argumentative. He argued with his father criticized and scorned authority, he criticized his father's party for the squandering son, expressed envy and resentment toward those who were more fortunate, he resented that the fattened calf was killed for his brother, he voiced exaggerated complaints of personal misfortune, he had slaved for years. Take a couple of minutes to think through your own behaviors and thoughts. Ask yourself these questions. When was the last time you didn't share an honest view about a topic even when asked? Have you ever become upset with someone but didn't let them know why? Who was it? Why were you afraid to explain? How did you act toward them during the next week? Have you ever seen someone praise someone in public but criticize that same person in private? Passive aggressiveness is easier to spot in others than our own lives. There is likely an underlying cause for passive aggressiveness. It can be due to fear of failure, a desire for perfection, a fear of rejection, a desire to be liked, or a fear of conflict, a desire for harmony. 
It's crucial to understand the root of the issue so that it can be addressed head-on. Suppressed aggression looks like sarcasm, failing to complete a task, procrastination, stubbornness, chronic lateness, and even grumpiness. I've seen some of the sweetest people in the world unable to express their disagreement, so they start to regularly show up late to work, forget to complete tasks, and work with intentional inefficiency. It's very common among volunteers who have no option to express displeasure with the vocational leaders they help. It's important to add that indirect communication is different from passive aggressiveness, and I've tried to be precise in this section. Some cultural contexts value indirect communication as a way to maintain harmony and avoid shame, even in the midst of conflict. I work and teach often in Southeast Asia and have many dear friends and colleagues there. I am sensitive to their cultural form of communication and navigating conflict there. We need to have that same sensitivity in our home communities as well recognizing that some families, ethnic groups, and denominational traditions use indirect methods of conflict resolution, and we have to adjust if we want to be effective peacemakers. Moving forward, regardless of our experience or ministry context, the inability to handle and navigate conflict and defensiveness can be blind spots for some Christian workers. The reality is that we cannot avoid conflict But at the same time, we need to be committed to doing conflict well. What about you? Do you find yourself easily bothered by what others say or do? Do you lose sleep over the fact that others don't respond to you like you believe they should? Do you often say, I'm offended or something similar? Do you find yourself in small arguments more often than you have been in the past? People new to leadership can be more confident than their experience level would support. Further, if we're honest, we can be quite selfish no matter our experience level. The humbling part in all of this is that often what irritates us about others is what we're working on ourselves. In fact, in my coaching of young leaders, I often say, your irritations may look a lot like you. The principle is this, the things about others that irritate us teach us something about ourselves. Whenever humans work and live with one another, there will be conflict. That includes the church, Christian ministries, and nonprofit settings. Unfortunately, Christian ministries have been notorious for not handling conflict well. We need to lead the charge in our ministry settings to create the context and guidelines for handling conflict well. By doing so, we help foster a dynamic in our community that is warm, inviting, and effective. The health and unity of your group and its collective Christ-like character will be a floodlight in your community announcing something rare in these divisive days. For greater awareness, I use this series of eight questions to help gain perspective on conflict, whether it involves me or not. Use this process as your next steps for this chapter. After periods of prayer and spiritual reflection, I ask, Number one, in one sentence, what is the problem? Number two, who is involved? Names, roles, relationships. Number three, what are people saying that is wrong? Number four, is there a history, underlying issue, or context for the problem, and how long has it existed? Number five, was there a trigger event? Has it expanded since then? Number six, 
In one word, what is the category of this conflict? Vision, sin, preferences, feelings, relationship, or something else? Number seven, according to the people involved, what would resolve the conflict? Number eight, if you had a godly outside mediator, what would that person say is the problem, and what would be the recommended resolution? To discern more about your own passive aggressiveness, reflect on these questions. Number one, do I resent anyone's authority in my life? Number two, where am I resisting the direction of the ministry I serve? Number three, as a leader, am I facilitating passive resistance by leading a culture of poor communication and by suppressing open dialogue? Number four, how would others describe my level of generosity to others and my openness to their ideas and input? And number five, have I recently denied my feelings or ideas to others when I knew that it wasn't how I truly felt? Explain. Explain.